Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 98, January 30th to February 5th, 1863. Last week, we had Burnside being removed from command of the Army of the Potomac, something that no doubt relieved the embattled general. We also had the Bear River Massacre in Idaho, which as we mentioned will be a bigger event than Sand Creek or Wounded Knee, but sadly does not receive the recognition it deserves when compared to these probably more well-known massacres of Native peoples. This week, we're going to jump around just a bit. We actually get to return to Tennessee and the site of the old Fort Donaldson battlefield. First, though, we need to check out what is going on in Charleston, in South Carolina. Before we do that, just want to mention, once again, our Patreon content that we have rolling out. We did have two this last month here in January, as January comes to a close. We had part two of our Gods and Generals movie review. We also had a picture slideshow that shows the Slaughter Pen Farm and Prospect Hill region of the Fredericksburg Battlefield. So that probably tied fairly well in with last month we had Fredericksburg, both gods and generals, and the slideshow I think paired very nicely with those. So if either of those things sound like something that would interest you, you want to see the battlefield as it is today, you want to hear what I have to say about gods and generals uh, in real time watching it, then um, those are on the Patreon feed and Uh, Of course, your support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. I will also say we're going back to a memoir review for the month of February um, because we're kind of in the middle of some of these major events that the Iron Brigade sees. I'm going to do the memoirs from Rufus Dawes, um, and he was the colonel at one point, uh, I think a lieutenant colonel as well of the 6th Wisconsin. So because we're kind of in the middle of all these big things that uh, the Iron Brigade are doing here in, in these in these battles, uh, I want to do that memoir review here. So um, be on the lookout for that. And of course, you know, on these episodes, I will let you know when that is posted. I feel like we have not been in South Carolina maybe since the Battle of Secessionville in the summer of 1862. Just as a refresher, that was a Union ground assault that failed to take the city, or at least portion of James Island that would have set them up nicely to be in a position to take the city. Earlier in 1861, there had been a capture made by Samuel DuPont of Port Royal, which was a key deepwater sound further south along the coast than Charleston. A blockade had since been established so as to shut off the Confederate port from potential French or British aid. There had not yet been a real attempt to take the harbor by forces of the U.S. Navy. Remember that there were all kinds of forts that protected the harbor, including Fort Sumter, where the war kicked off in 1861. The weakness of Fort Sumter was that it faced the wrong direction in that conflict, In the winter of 1863, the Confederacy had a familiar face commanding the harbor and the hero of Fort Sumter himself, P.G.T. Beauregard. 
John Pemberton, as we have mentioned, is commanding in Mississippi, who was the commanding officer of the defenses of Charleston during the Battle of Secessionville. Well, much in the same way as in other places, Pemberton is not going to make very many friends in Charleston, and they are going to want him to be removed, partly because of his abilities, shall we say, as a commanding officer, as a general officer, but then also because there is a unease about him because he's actually from the north. So he's got going to be trusted by some individuals in the Confederacy. Beauregard had been relegated to this lesser theater of the war following the disappointing performances he had in 1862. It does not help that you bump heads with Jefferson Davis and Beauregard probably having the French connection, thought himself to be the next Napoleon. And when that kind of stuff goes to your head, it's probably not good. And it's not good when you're disagreeing with the president. Uh, and Jefferson Davis is going to add him to the list of generals that he doesn't like, so he's getting sent to Charleston. The good news about Beauregard holding this particular post, though, is that he knew the defenses of the city fairly well. These had been evolving since the opening actions in 1861 and the capture of the fort, making it quite the formidable position. Having a good defensive work that could provide a wide gallery of fire on a potential naval assault was not the only thing that PGT had up his sleeve in 1863. He had two ironclad rams, the Palmetto State and the Chicora. Despite being less impressed with these ships, they could be used to potentially break the Union blockade. Now why was this important given the amount of vessels the Union Navy could be able to muster? Well, if you recall our episodes that included the Trent Affair, there are these weird international laws that govern naval practices and naval warfare practices as well. One such law surrounded naval blockades on cities of foreign nations. It stipulated that if the blockade was broken, then there would have to be a formal re-establishing of the blockade to make it legal. It's kind of weird, I know. Not exactly different from a timeout in a game of tag. You thought you were playing a simple children's game, but really, you were getting acquainted with the 1800s maritime law. Should this happen for Beauregard, these legal re-establishings would open the port to receive much-needed war material in the meantime. This would also be a double-edged sword, because it would also potentially give the Confederacy the formal recognition they wished as a sovereign nation. Remember, we are not too far removed from the Battle of Fredericksburg and the repulsive Chickasaw Bluffs. It was during this dark December that there were murmurs of foreign intervention, the South seemingly standing their ground against the North, which is also why it was important to have a victory in the form of Stones River in Tennessee, for the federal cause. Naval offensive action may also have been born out of necessity. A British blockade runner had recently been captured, which had supplies that would have been extremely useful for the Confederacy. They amounted to around 500,000 in value, which included ammunition, guns, and importantly for the Navy, two engines that would be used for ironclad vessels. In late January, it was time to act in an effort to prevent such an event from happening again. 
Furthermore, the job was about to get much harder for the Confederates. Union ironclads, the Passaic-class monitors, were going to be joining the blockading effort. Now, the Passaic-class monitor is going to be based on John Erickson's original design of the USSS monitor, but it has some major improvements. The pilot house was not in the rear of the vessel. Rather, it was on top of the turret. So there goes the plan to knock that out or blind that part of the ship. Additionally, the Passaics were larger, and instead of 11-inch guns, they were armed with at least one 15-inch gun, so packing some serious punch. It was thought that the two rams would be outclassed by the new arrivals, proving them ineffective. Despite being smaller, the Confederate Navy did, by this time, have veteran officers available. Part of this was the lack of available vessels. If you only have enough to count on one hand, and you have 10 officers, then it does not take a statistician to conclude that those odds are pretty good. Commanding the two ironclad rams were veterans of the Battle of Hampton Roads, having commanded smaller vessels supporting the CSS Virginia. These would have been part of the James River Fleet. They were also lucky to have Flag Officer Duncan Ingram, who had served in the War of 1812. On January 31st, the rams would move out with experienced commanders to strike at the blockaders. The first target was the USS Mercedita, which was a converted merchant vessel. This ship did have eight guns, despite being a converted merchant. The captain of the Mercedita was tired after giving chase to a Confederate troop transport, suspected of being a blockade runner. It was while he was at rest that the Confederate rams approached. The Palmetto State was hailed too late for the Union Navy men to do anything before being fired upon. A shot hit the boiler, disabling the vessel. Steam would cause several casualties, much in the same way that it had on the USS Mound City. The captain would surrender the vessel, but the Confederates did not have the capability of taking the Mercedita and manning her or taking the Union Naval personnel on board. They would settle for the parole of the Northern men. While the Palmetto State was engaging the Mercedita, the Chicora would engage the USS Keystone State. The Keystone State had a variety of different guns, 9 in total, and 163 men. They would hear the firing of the Palmetto State and prepare by beating to quarters. It was not apparent that the Confederates were actually attacking, though, as it was initially thought they would just be chasing another blockade runner. As the Chikora approached, she opened fire. With a well-placed shot, the Keystone State would see damage along with casualties and a fire being started on board. The captain of the Keystone State would put speed in an effort to escape and also put out the fire, which was partially accomplished. She would then turn to face the Chikora. They would whiff on a ramming run, which was doubly unfortunate. Unfortunate one, because they missed, but unfortunate two, because the Chikora was able to then hit the Keystone State as they passed, damaging the vessel yet again. Now, the Keystone State was a side-wheeler. This shot actually knocked out one of the wheels, which prompted thoughts of surrender. The other wheel was not damaged, 
which would still allow the Union vessel to limp away. By this time, help was on the way in the form of the USS Memphis and the USS Quaker State, which would show up in time to tow away the Keystone State and move out to sea. Ingram would recall the two ironclads back into the harbor, considering their work on the day a success. Ingram would be quoted as saying, The sea was perfectly smooth, as much so as in the harbor. Everything was most favorable for us and gave us no opportunity to test the sea qualities of the boats. The engines worked well, and we obtained a greater speed than they were ever before sustained. While the Keystone State and the Mercedita had escaped capture, the Confederates had damaged them and even managed to land a blow on the Quaker State. This was exciting news because the Union blockade was in fact broken, so they had accomplished their main goal. Beauregard would send word to Richmond about their success. It was all for naught, though. DuPont would not honor the blockade law, and more ships would soon arrive to strengthen the federal position. It was a bright mark against the U.S. Navy and their blockade for Charleston, and maybe some revenge for the big capture of a blockade runner, but really, nothing more than that. On February 3rd, we actually returned to Fort Donelson with the engagement at Dover. Joseph Wheeler had been dispatched to disrupt Union supplies, especially river travel along the Cumberland River. If you remember the Cumberland River, this flowed right by Dover and the site of Grant's victory in 1862. Wheeler would have with him contingents under the introduced Wharton and Nathan Bedford Forrest. Forrest is upset at this time because Joseph Wheeler, although qualified as a West Point graduate, and already having seen some success, especially during the Stones River campaign, is not the equivalent commander that Forrest is. Forrest has been doing more with little support from Braxton Bragg. Bragg, on the other hand, is more agreeable to the refined Wheeler, as opposed to the rough Forrest. During the raid that resulted in the Battle of Parker's Crossroads, there were certain amounts of supply promised to Forrest for the expedition and recruitment efforts. This promised material did not arrive, forcing Forrest to adapt. This would be the crux of Forrest's conflict with Bragg and the Army early in the war. Amazingly, without their backing, he would create effective cavalry regiments. Sometimes this would require funds from his own pocket. But once the regiments became effective, they would be stripped from his command and given to what in his eyes were lesser commanders in the form of, say, a Joe Wheeler. While maybe not bumping heads directly with Wheeler, their service would come to a head at Dover in 1863. It's also going to show that Joe Wheeler is not necessarily going to be the best in terms of independent command. This is probably another reason why Braxton Bragg likes Joseph Wheeler. He's not going to be the kind of guy who's going to outshine him, and he's going to obey orders. He's more comfortable in that role. We see a lot of different officers throughout the war who are going to be more comfortable with receiving orders and, and following them very well and performing effectively, but in terms of independent command and thinking independently, they're not going to be as effective. And we can chalk up Joseph Wheeler as one of those, at least for this part of the war. There would not be much success in terms of disrupting the shipping, but during their operations, the target presented itself in the form of the city of Dover itself. While containing fortifications, the garrison was only some 800 men, mostly from the 83rd Illinois. 
there were some contingents of Iowa cavalry as well. Forrest was against the assault, thinking the position too strong. Even for the 2,500 cavalrymen, the Confederates had a significant numerical advantage. Wheeler decided to press on. A demand for surrender of the garrison was refused, which prompted mounted assaults from Wharton and Forrest. These assaults would sustain heavy casualties and overall be ineffective. We have an account from one of the defenders in the 83rd. The attack, though, anticipated for a week, was not known to be imminent until noon on Thursday the 3rd. At 3 p.m., a battery of rebel artillery took position on the ridge to the west at a distance of three-fourths of a mile and opened fire upon the town with shells. Soon their artillery was playing upon our forces from three or four directions. Their forces completely encompassed the town in a semicircle of perhaps three miles in extent from river to river. After this, formidably displaying the strength of his forces, the rebel general sent a flag of truce to Colonel Harding, demanding an unconditional surrender of the place. It was promptly refused, the colonel declaring that he would fight as long as he had a man left. The attack was renewed with great vigor. Charge after charge was made by the rebels, who were all mounted. But the Springfield rifles of the 83rd were in airing, and each charge resulted in a repulse and a score of emptied saddles. A body of rebels dismounted and leaving their horses forced their way into town and fired upon our men from such houses as they could secure until they were driven out at the point of the bayonet or captured. There were multiple demands of surrender by the Confederates, but these were bluffs. Wharton's cavalry were seeing some success, but they would soon run out of ammunition. Forrest's men, while having gained some ground in the town itself, were also seeing their ammunition dwindle. With no success, low supply, and heavy casualties, the Confederates would withdraw. Wheeler would greatly downplay the amount of men the rebels lost. Union accounts counting of the battlefield after would be much more. Casualty figures thus push in the 600 range for the Southerners. This was a staggering loss compared to around 120 for the Northern defenders. After the battle, Forrest would declare that he would no longer serve under Wheeler. Was this just a conflict of personalities? Probably. Wheeler is not quite the unpolished figure depicted in one of my favorite TNT movies, Rough Riders, which depicts Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders during the war against Spain in the late 1800s. He was seemingly opposite in many ways to Forrest, even being smaller in stature. Forrest was, by accounts, maybe 6'3 or 6'2. Forrest would be slated for an independent command soon, but would first have things come to a head with Braxton Bragg, who, truth be told, would not get off quite as easily as Wheeler. When I say that he got off easy, I mean that Forrest didn't you know, threaten him or challenge him to a duel or something like that. It's actually what we know about Forrest and how he was flying off the handle and having this great temper, uh, it was actually sort of tame for him. He very sternly but calmly is going to say, I'm not going to serve under you anymore, which, like I said, it's getting off easy if you're Joe Wheeler. Briefly, let's talk about snowball fights. In the winter of 1863, there was perhaps one of the largest snowball fights to ever occur in the Confederate winter encampments. 
Many of the southern soldiers were not familiar with snow, being from climates that do not support heavy snowfall. But the winter of 1863 was particularly bad in Virginia, which meant larger amounts of the white fluffy stuff. The Southerners would form by brigades and have epic snowball battles, sometimes in formation. We do have one account here. The troops delight in snowballing and reveled in the sport for days at a time. Many hard battles were fought, won, and lost, sometimes company against company, then regiment against regiment, and sometimes brigades would be pitted against rival brigades. When the South Carolinians were against the Georgians, or the two Georgia brigades against Kershaw's and the Mississippi brigades, then the blows would fall fast and furious. The fiercest fight and the hardest run of my life was when Kershaw's brigade, under Colonel Rutherford of the 3rd, challenged and fought Cobb's Georgians. Colonel Rutherford was a great lover of the sport, and wherever a contest was going on, he would be sure to take a hand. On the day alluded to, Colonel Rutherford marshaled his men by them beating drums and the bugles blast. Officers headed their companies, regiments formed, with flags flying. Then when all was ready, the troops were marched to the brow of a hill, or rather halfway down the hill, and formed into line of battle, there to await the coming of the Georgians. They were, at that moment, advancing across the plain that separated the two camps. The men built great pyramids of snowballs in their rear and awaited the assault of the fast-approaching enemy. Officers cheered the men and urged them to stand fast and uphold the honor of their state, while the officers on the other side sought their men to sweep all before them off the field. The men stood trembling with cold and emotion, and the officers with fear, for the officer who was luckless enough to fall at the hands of a set of snow revelers found his sorrow that his bed was not one of roses. When the Georgians were within 100 feet, the order was given to fire. Then shower after shower of the fleecy balls filled the air. Cheer after cheer went up from the assaulters and the assaultant, now pressed back by the flying balls. Then to the assault again. Officers shouted to the men, and they answered with a yell. When some, more bold than the rest, ventured too near, he was caught and dragged through the lines, while his comrades made frantic efforts to rescue him. The poor prisoner, now safely behind the lines, his fate problematical, as down in the snow he was pulled, now on his face, next on his back, then swung around and round by his heels, all the while snow being pushed down his back, or in his bosom, his eyes, ears, and hair thoroughly filled with the beautiful snow. That's not the only account that I've seen of these big snowball battles. Obviously, you know, combat is primarily something that these soldiers remember, but this would also be something to remember as well. And the thing that I like about this account and other accounts is that they do write it uh, sort of in a, in a comical way, like they would probably write about a real battle, right? And that's interesting to me uh, in how they take it very seriously, right? And I know Maybe there are some of you out there who took snowball fights very seriously. So we can kind of make a connection with these men of the past. Likewise, the way that they're describing, you know, putting snow down your shirt and whatnot, that that sounds kind of like how you would see a snowball fight today, right? Yeah, I'm sure some of us have been in that scenario before. And again, it puts this human element into these soldiers that... I think sometimes we miss when we talk about history, we talk about the civil war. So it's one of the things I like to, I like to talk about. 
As mentioned, these battles were complete with prisoners of war, and then of course, prisoner exchanges. They would even make sort of this exchange rate like you would with the Union Army, like one officer for however many men. So it is a very, like I said, interesting event. Some of the stakes were fairly high for the food-deprived rebels. Capturing an enemy camp might mean getting to supplement one's diet. Cavalry even got involved with a raid. In a lighter-hearted note, though, it's interesting that these battles ended with no ill will, and usually only with minor injuries. Gives us a great insight into how Civil War soldiers spent their time in winter quarters. We're going to close out with a quick note on the 1st South Carolina Volunteer Infantry. We speak not of a Confederate regiment, but rather the 1st U.S. Colored Regiment, which would be renamed the 33rd United States Colored Infantry Regiment. The 1st South Carolina was made up of escaped slaves that had flocked to the key recruiting area of Port Royal. You remember Port Royal, we talked about that at the beginning of the episode, so we've kind of come full circle there, haven't we? While they would not be engaged in any major combat during the war, they would be key for conducting raids with an intimate knowledge of the area. The Colonel of the First would have a high regard for his men, quoted as having said, We, their officers, did not go there to teach lessons, but to receive them. There were more than a hundred men in the ranks who had voluntarily met more dangers in their escape from slavery than any of my young captains had incurred in all their lives. The colonel would actually go on to document the Gullah dialect in which they spoke, which I think is an interesting connection with the movie Glory, in which the 54th Massachusetts encounter some of these men. I've not been able to confirm the dialect, but I would imagine there are an interesting mix of culture that would potentially make it hard for northerners to understand. Harriet Tubman would also have connections with the first South Carolina during the war. There's going to be more formations of these kinds of regiments now that we have turned the corner effectively to 1863 and remember the Emancipation Proclamation. So there are going to be more of these U.S. colored regiments that are going to be popping up uh, as we progress. So um, this is just one of the first or the first regiment uh, that was formed. I should say officially because we did have that one unit out in Kansas that participates in Island Mound. I do also want to make two quick notes about this because I know we're going to be running into it as we progress. Um, the official title for these regiments were, um, like I said, the 33rd U.S. Colored Troops, and that's what I'm going to be using to refer to them. You know, obviously, I know that it's probably it's not PC, right, to say that um, probably now, but um, this was their title, so I'm going to be using it uh, moving forward for these regiments unless you get a situation like the 54th Massachusetts, which is a state designation, right? Um, and the other thing I do want to mention as well is that um, something that we often overlook is that these regiments did not always include just escaped slaves or former slaves or or free blacks, uh, mind you. So there would have been you know a certain contingent of Native Americans uh, as well into these regiments too. So um, that's something else we should keep in mind, that there are different cultures coming together in these regiments. So just wanted to mention that as well. With that, we're going to call it quits. This week, we had a good couple of events. We had the temporary breaking of the blockade at Charleston. 
We had a battle at Dover, which was not the success that Nathan Bedford Forrest, so far, was used to. We had a great account of the snowball fights of 1863 in the Confederate camps. Finally, we backtracked just a bit for the creation of the first South Carolina Volunteer Infantry, the first made from formerly enslaved. Next week, we have a skirmish in North Carolina, but otherwise a light week, so it's a good time perhaps to see what's going on with world events from 1862. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. So again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>